Second Peter 1, 12 to 18, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. St. Augustine, after whom our oldest city in the United States is named, which happens to be in our state, St. Augustine, was a North African theologian of the 4th and 5th centuries, and he has a book called The Teacher. And in that, he presents what's called the Learner's Paradox. And he talks about things and symbols or signs. And he said there are things and there are signs. And so uh, the, the signs point to the thing. So he could say, well, there, there's such a thing as a, uh, a device that's a, a, an instrument for writing letters and it has graphite and you can twist it and the, and the graphite comes out and you can make markings on a piece of paper. That's the thing. Well, the sign is the word pencil. And he says, if I say the word, let's say pencil, he didn't have pencils, but if I say the word pencil and you know what a pencil is, You haven't learned anything, have you? And if I say the word pencil and you don't know what a pencil is, you haven't learned anything either. So he basically says learning is impossible through words, through signs. Well, how does he rescue us from perpetual ignorance? Well, he takes something from Plato and something else from the Bible. What he takes from Plato is the idea of remembering Recalling, Plato had this idea that we had all this knowledge in the past and we somehow lost it, and the only thing we need is to be reminded of it. But then he also takes something from the Gospel of John where Jesus is the teacher, and Jesus is the one who illumines, and Jesus is the one who makes what is impossible possible. Now, that's a very entertaining uh, and kind of mind-boggling approach to learning, and whether or not that is true, there is obviously something there that we all understand, that much of our learning is actually re-learning. And of course, the older we get, the more that is the case, because we've learned more and more over the years, and what else have we done? We've forgotten more and more over the years. And so what we really need is to be reminded of what we already know. And the older we get, the more we say, oh, that's right. I used to know that. Now I remember. Something jogs it and brings it back to us. And we understand. Even with little kids who haven't had that much instruction yet, the teacher is always doing what? Let me remind you of what we said yesterday about history or about addition or subtraction or whatever it might be. Repetition, repetition, reminding, reminding. And what we have here in this text is Peter telling us why he wrote this letter. 
He reveals his purpose. He says flat out why he wrote it, and guess what it is? It's not to bring new information to the churches. It's not to bring new information to the the people of God. It's to remind them, and in addition to that, to make sure that even after he's gone, they can be reminded of the truths they already know. So this is a reminder, and there's a great deal of this kind of language throughout the Scriptures. So the first verse is 12 to 15, I will remind you. That's the point. And then verses 16 to 18 He emphasizes where he got the information about which he taught them originally and of which he was reminding them in this letter. Verse 12, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Now, they translated this, these qualities, but actually it's just these things. And already we have seen that that word, these things, a number of times through these first 11 verses. And I think we should leave it more these things instead of these qualities because we have seen more than just qualities so far in verses 1 to 11. In the first four verses, we saw truths, the truths that they already had. You remember those amazing truths? Those amazing truths that, that Jesus is God, that God has given us everything we need for godly living. Those were the truths. And then he said, because of these truths, because of these truths, Therefore, in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And then we saw the list of qualities and virtues to which we ought to be giving our constant and eager attention. So when he says, I I will do everything I can, I intend always to remind you of these things, he's meaning the doctrines, the truths, and our response of faith to those truths, adding to our faith, supplementing our faith in the constant growth in these godly qualities that we looked at last week. Now, he recognizes that they already had these things. He says, I intend always to remind you of these things. And he says, though you know them... And we've seen already the emphasis on knowledge, the importance of knowledge in Second Peter. Even though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So he is very clear about the fact that they already have everything that he's talking about here. He says, I will do everything I can, though, to remind you thereof. And there was an urgency. And here we learn about the urgency of Peter's reminding. And the urgency was this. He was soon to leave this world. In verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And here they translated this body, but actually this is a metaphor. And it's a a metaphor that was common in the Greek world of his day. And we've seen how Peter is doing that a great deal in this letter. He is taking Greek concepts, Roman concepts, but he is using them, reformulating them with Christian truth, to teach Christian truth. And the, the metaphor here is tent. It's tent. He says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent. Now, if you go to 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, you will find... Paul using the same sort of language. He talks about being in this tent. Now, what's the the idea here? If you go to Greek thinking, the idea is that, that this body is something extra and it's something like an impediment and what we really want to do is cast it off and then the soul will be free. You find nothing of that in the Scripture. 
But what this idea of tent means is not that this is something to be despised, the human body, but that, realistically, in our current state in this world, it is temporary. Uh, This tent is not going to last forever, at least not in its current state. And so that's the, the idea here. As long as I am in this tent, which is, which is wearing out, and he says that he will soon put it off. But he says, as long as I am in this tent, verse 13, I, I think it's right to stir you up by way of what? There it is. Again, reminder. Since I know, and here he tells what he knows, I know that the putting off of my tent will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, here he says he knew he was going to die soon. And the question is, how did he know that? He says that the Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to him, and so that reminds us of what, at the end of the Gospel of John, that Jesus said to Peter, he said, when you were young, you used to go wherever you wanted, but when you're old, they will lead you where you don't want to go, and they will stretch out your hands and take you where you don't want to go. And so there was a a prophecy about Peter dying. Now, we don't know how many years later this was, but this was some time later, a couple of decades later, and so we asked the question, how did Peter know that he was about to die? Well, he could have had a special revelation from the Lord, or he could have just looked at his circumstances and said, I'm getting old. And persecution under Emperor Nero is very severe, and so I know that I'm about to die. However that is, he knew that his time was short. And so it was urgent. It was urgent for him to, to get this message, this reminder out for them. Verse 14 again, it says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I want you to see the, the nonchalance with which he talks about his death. He, he seems to be very little concerned about this. And the kind of language he uses is not to despise death, but it's, it's, it's to say, well, I know that, that this tent, tent is collapsing soon, and I know that soon I will be rolling this tent up, I'll be putting this tent away. He, he's not despising the body, he's not despising death, but he's treating it with a, a sort of casualness. And the question is, why? And, and how, how could he do that? It's not because of the Greek idea that the body is something we need to escape from. No. The Christian message has two truths that comfort the Christian in life and in death. And what are those? As Paul says in Philippians, and also in that, that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when Paul was was facing the possibility in prison of dying or being released, he's like, What should I do? What should I do? Well, I'd really, really prefer to depart and to be with Christ, because that's much better. But to remain in the body is more necessary and and more useful for the, the church and its growth. And so that's the first truth. And this is the truth we often mention in Christian funerals, and that which we use to comfort each other when there is a death of a believer. And that is that the believer is immediately with Christ. But there's another truth that often gets passed over, and it's the, it's the end game for Christians. It's the resurrection of the body. 
We're not, we're not just casting the body aside in 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about that, that he will be unclothed from his, his tent. He says, but my desire is not to be unclothed, but to be reclothed. You see, the end game for the Christian is not some bodiless existence. As glorious as that will be with Christ, there's something even better, and that is the resurrection of the body. If we know the Apostles' Creed, we say that, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And these two truths comfort us in the the loss of, of our loved ones in Christ. And they comfort us as we approach the, the folding up of our own tents as well. That, that we will be with the Lord immediately, but we will not always be unclothed. But, but when Christ comes again, that the dead will rise, and we will be clothed with imperishable bodies, whatever that, that might look like. That's the comfort of the Christian, and that's why, why, why Christians face death in such a different way from the rest of the world. I've often concluded, as I've, as I've been in more funerals than I, than I wish I had, that, that if the only benefit to being a Christian were being able to live without fear of death and die without fear of death, that would be an amazing gift in and of itself. This is our hope, to be with Christ and to be clothed in bodies that will not be folded up, that will never be put aside again, once we are raised to imperishability, to incorruptibility. Now, because of his impending death, he said he wanted to remind them, but he said something curious here that has set the scholars off um, with different ideas. He says, and I will make every effort. So verse 12 is in the future. This I intend, it's I will intend. And then verse 15 is future. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So three times he's talked about recalling or reminding. And he says, I will, in future tense, I will make sure that even after I'm gone, you can recall these things. Now, what do the scholars divide about? They say, well, he's referring something, he's referring to this letter. He's referring to this letter. I'm writing this letter so that you have this letter after I die. Others say, no, it's future tense. So he was referring to another letter, uh, a third Peter, if you will, that he may or may not have written. And others say, you know, actually he was probably referring to the Gospel of Mark. And that's an interesting idea because way back in church history, almost as far back as we can go, there is this idea that that Peter was the one who gave Mark so much information to write his gospel, which was probably the first gospel. Now, I tend to think that he's referring to this letter with a little bit unusual language of, of, of future tense, but however that might be, however that may be, to whatever he was referring himself here, he accomplished his purpose, didn't he? And not only did he accomplish his purpose, the apostles accomplished their purpose Because all of them are gone. And they have been gone for a long, long time now. But we, even here today, so far away, so far after the facts, we are able to be reminded of the truths that they preached. And why? It's in our hands right now. It's in our hands. It's called the New Testament. This is amazing, folks, that we have this testimony 
of the apostles and of the, 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 the friends of the apostles, that they did their job so that the truths that they preached in their day would not be lost to the earth, but rather that at any point, any point, anyone with access to these words can be reminded, can be taught and be reminded of the truths that we have here. That is why, that is why I sound like a broken record every week saying, read the Bible, folks. Read the Bible, because it is God's word to us through the apostles, something we're going to see very clearly next week as we learn what the the Bible is and how it came to us. Now, um, he says this all in first person. He's talking about I, 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 this is my plan, this is what I will do. Then you notice a shift from first person singular, I, to first person plural in verse 16, we. There's a shift from I to we. So this is my plan for after my departure so that you can remind yourselves, recall these things. And then he gives the explanation about what we did, or rather what we didn't do at first. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So after writing of his plan, he says, where did we get this in the first place? I, I want to remind you of these things, but let's, let's take a few steps back. And let, let me remind you of where we got these things in the first place. These things of which I want to remind you now, these things that we preach to you, the apostles, we all preach the same thing to you and to wherever we went. But from where did these come? And here we pick up, probably for the first time, that there was some opposition to Peter. We pick up that there were some opponents to Peter. Now, we will meet them in chapter 2. And we will meet them and know a great deal about them in chapter 2 and hear Peter lambasting them in chapter 2. But here we begin to pick up that all was not right that there were some opponents that were calling into question the, the teaching of the apostles. And they were calling them cleverly devised myths. Cleverly devised myths. Now that has not gone away. If you go to pretty much any, any secular university and take a religion class, you will learn that the Bible is full of what? Cleverly devised myths. That, that, that's, a, that's an idea that's an ancient idea. That was the accusation against them, and that's still the accusation by many against the Scriptures. So he responds. He says, we did not. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this word coming in the New Testament always refers to what we call the second coming. It's always in the New Testament, it's the second coming is the coming of Christ. And here it talks about the power and coming. These are probably not two things, the power here, the coming here. It's the powerful coming. It is His coming back again in power. It wasn't until the second century of the church when they began to talk about the first coming, like we do, and the second coming. For the early Christians, the coming was Jesus' return in power. And so these critics of the apostles were saying, you're making this up. 
This is a, a cleverly devised myth. The idea that, that Jesus, they weren't denying that he had come once, but that this Jesus would, would come again in power. You are making that up. And so, what he does is he responds to this criticism by recalling an event that happened in the gospel account. He says, we were, we were, verse 16, eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his majesty. And this word majesty is, is not real common, but it has divine overtones. And we've already seen how clearly Peter teach, points to Jesus as God, but here's another one. We, we were eyewitness to his divine majesty. And then he recalls what we call the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, a similar word, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This account occurs in Matthew, it occurs in Mark, it occurs in Luke. I'm going to read it from Matthew 17. It goes like this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So he says, we're not making this up, this idea of of Jesus coming in power. Why? Because we've already seen His majesty. We were there. We saw Him transfigured before our eyes. And not only did we see Him, we heard something. So He's saying we are eyewitnesses and we are ear witnesses as well. We saw Jesus transfigured. We heard the voice from heaven. Now what did the voice from heaven say? The voice from heaven which we, we learn here and we already understand is God the Father, said this, said, This is my beloved Son. And the way Peter writes it is not quite, a, quite how we found it. We find it a little bit different in each of the Gospels, but here it's very emphatic. This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is a, a combination of two verses from the Old Testament. What God said on that mountain was a combination of Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. Psalm 2-7, God speaks to the Son and says, You are my Son. You are my Son. So here we have it in, This is my Son. This is the declaration that Jesus is the Divine Son, and in Psalm 2, He is being enthroned as the King. So the first part of this quotation is, This is my divine son, my kingly son. I am enthroning him as the king, his majesty. 
But then the second part of that comes from Isaiah 42.1. And Isaiah 42 is in the section of, the, of Isaiah of the servant songs. And there are these songs about the servant of the Lord. And as we read this, we're, we're trying to figure out who this servant is. Because sometimes it sounds like an individual, and sometimes it sounds like the nation of Israel. And then as we read on and on about this servant, we find that this servant is a suffering servant. That he will suffer for the sins of the people. And he will take those sins upon himself. And he will be rejected. And he will be be rejected by the people, but he's pleasing to God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now it may sound like a simple phrase, but putting these two putting these two these two sections of the Old Testament together is what was so difficult in Jesus' day. You see, they were expecting the king to come. They're expecting the son to come. They're expecting the son of David to come and be a king. And then they had this idea about this this suffering servant, but they had not yet put these two together. And that's why so many people in Jesus' day did not recognize Him when He came. Because He didn't much look like a conquering king, did He? He didn't look like He was riding in in power to smash the enemies. And then at the end, when He laid down His life and was crucified on a Roman cross, He didn't didn't look at all kingly. And there was that mocking placard above his head by Pilate, which said more truth than it knew, but it seemed to be so ironic. It seemed to be so so wrong, didn't it? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. How, how could the King of the Jews suffer like this? Well, in this declaration, we have the answer that, that, that the divine, majestic Son who is King He's also the suffering servant. It's the king. It's the king who came to suffer. It's the king who came to be rejected. It's the king who came to lay down his life. It's the king who came to be crushed for our iniquities. It's the king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we have those two ideas in this little declaration that we have on that holy mountain. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the question is here, the question is here is, what purpose does this reference serve in this instance? What's he trying to prove? He's trying to prove that Jesus is coming in power, right? How does this reference to the transfiguration of which Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses and ear witnesses, how does that authenticate the coming of of Jesus in power. And there's a twofold answer. This this has two purposes here. This this reference to the transfiguration one is this. It authenticates the apostolic preaching as eyewitness accounts, not cleverly devised myths. Not cleverly devised myths. Rather eyewitness earwitnesses earwitness accounts. So that's the first purpose. The second purpose is that the transfiguration guarantees guarantees the coming of Jesus in power. And there's a curious, if you go back with me to Matthew chapter 16, 
And um, the last verse of chapter 16, there's this, this curious verse, declaration of Jesus, that has, has caused a number of people to, to scratch their heads. Verse 28, right before the transfiguration, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And some skeptics look at that and say, see, Jesus was wrong. That whole generation died and and Jesus hadn't come in His kingdom. But then right after that, we read, after six days, Jesus took them up on the mountain. And what did they see? They saw Jesus coming in His kingdom. They saw an anticipation. They saw a preview. They saw a trailer. They saw what was going to happen. It was forced forward in time. The the kingdom came right before their eyes. And how did it come? It came in power. And there was a declaration of power there. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so they say, you want to know that Jesus is coming? You want to know that He's coming in power? We can tell you. For certain He is. Well, how do you know that, Peter? How do you know that, James? How do you know that, John? How do you know He's coming in power? And they say, what do you mean, how do we know? We saw it. We saw it happen before our very eyes. We know He's coming because we already saw the foretaste when we were with Him on that holy mountain. We were with Him. It happened. We saw it. And so you can take our word for it. You can write it down. This is going to happen. He is going to come in power. No cleverly devised myths here based on what we saw and what we heard. Every year since 1990, the American Dialect Society gathers. Probably they gathered virtually lately this last year. But they gather to choose a word or a phrase that defined... The year. I'm not going to read all of them back to 1990, but some of them you'll recognize as in our parlance to this day. 2008, the word of the year was bailout. 2009, sounds quaint now, the word was tweet. A new sort of phenomenon. 2010, app. You probably thought that was a word that's been around forever. App. 2012, Hashtag. Hashtag. 2014. Black Lives Matter. 2015. The pronoun they. That's when we started using they as a single pronoun to avoid a masculine or feminine singular pronoun. 2016. Dumpster fire. That's when I had to learn when I got back to the States in 2016. What a dumpster fire is. And then 2017, fake news, fake news. Now, we've all heard this phrase over these last few years more than we'd like, haven't we? And what is fake news? Well, it, it tends to be the news that we don't like and the news that we don't want to hear. And then we can just, we can just get rid of it by categorizing it as fake news, fake news. Now, this is a new phrase, perhaps, or at least in its popularity, but it's not a new idea. It was the technique of the opponents that we're beginning to meet here. The apostles would preach the news about Jesus. 
that he came, he was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he's what? He's coming again in power. And the opponents would scream, fake news, fake news, fake news. Didn't happen. It's not going to happen. Fake news, fake news. Now, what's the best way to deal with fake news? This is how I try to deal with it. If, if somebody challenges me and says, oh, what you're believing is fake news, if I'm going to bother at all dealing with the, the, the truth claim that they're giving me, what I try to do is I try to find the best resources possible. So when somebody says to me, oh, did you know that Congress is passing a law that's going to do this or that? Well, what I do is I, it's tedious, but I go, and if I'm interested enough, and I go and I read the law. And sometimes it's very difficult to, to read through it, very dull and boring, but I try to see, is this, is this really what the law is about? Or uh, any other sort of claim, a medical claim or a political claim, and I try to find the best resources I can, the most reliable resources I can. And that way I can know whether what I'm believing or what other people are believing is, is solid and based on the best information possible. Now, if you have, whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, if you're, you're here or listening, then you've, you've given attention to the Christian message. And you've thought about the Christian message deeply enough to ask yourself, is this true? Or is it fake news? And especially in light of the astounding, astounding claims that the Christian gospel makes. It makes astounding claims about Jesus of Nazareth being God in the flesh, the perfect human, God Himself, who lived as the representative of His people, died on the cross as the substitute for His people, rose in power from the grave, reigns at God's right hand, and is coming again in power. That's the Gospel message. Astounding claims. And if you haven't asked yourself the question, are these true or not, then you probably haven't reflected very deeply on them. But I want you to see something here, and to urge you to do what Peter is calling us to do today. And that is, for those who believe it, and for those who don't. For those who believe it, to remind ourselves why we believe it. For those who don't, to believe it. Now what should we do? Notice what Peter doesn't do here. He doesn't slap anybody's hand. He, do, he doesn't say, oh, don't ask those questions. Don't, don't be so impertinent, you, you false teachers, in calling my message fake news. Don't, don't be so... Don't, don't be so profane. Don't be so uh, so belligerent. He, he doesn't do that at all. What does he say? He says, look, examine. See where this comes from. Go back as far as you can. Where did this come from? Look at it. Look at the source. Find out where it came from. Investigate. And if you do, you will find, even as many millions have found, even as many of us have found, that this is not fake news, folks. As astounding as this is, this is truth. This is what we used to call gospel truth, which in English used to mean true truth, the real truth. And how do we know that? Because it's based on things that happened. It's based on things that are verified. It's based on things that were passed down to us by faithful witnesses. So we have warrant. 
we have every good reason, ample reason, to believe that these things are true and to build our lives upon them. Let's pray. Our God, none of us want to be deceived. And when we've been taken in, it's so bothersome and irritating and and sometimes it's downright costly and even dangerous. It brings us great loss. And so none of us want to be want to be deceived, especially about eternal things. We want to know the truth and we want to be set free from that truth or for, for by that truth. And so, God, we pray that you would, by your spirit, take this truth that we've heard today and sink it deep down into our hearts and minds. Enable us to believe what is true and live upon what is true. And I pray for those who are not yet believers in this, that you would reveal yourself to them and that you would use those of us who by your grace have come to faith in Jesus and to believe these things, that you would use us to bring others to the truth in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.